Welcome back to the Undisciplined Podcast. I'm your host as always, Nico Beitendach. Today I'm speaking to Professor Chantal Gray from Northwest University about her book, Anarchism After Deleuze and Guattari, Fabulating Futures. The book came out under Bloomsbury Publishing in 2022. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Thank you very much, Chantal, for speaking to me today about your new book. Before we get into the book, do you mind telling me a bit about your academic background and how you got interested in the different elements that you touch upon in the book, such as anarchism, such as Deleuze and Guattari? Uh, Thanks, Nico. It's so nice to be here. Uh, Yes, well, I've got quite um, a checkered background, really, um, in academia. And, um, you know, I was always, I was actually interested in philosophy, but I studied um, analytic philosophy because that's what was available at the university. So that's sort of where I started. And um, I was really interested in philosophy of mind, you know, sort of cut my teeth on the denets of this world. Mm. And um, so, so from there, but my, my major was actually political philosophy um, and, and politics. So I was very interested in that sort of angle. But of course, you know what political philosophy looks like. It doesn't look like Deleuze and Guattari. It looks like yes. Hobbes and Locke. <laughs> yeah. um, so I had a very different uh, kind of introduction to what this looked like. And then um, I left academia briefly because my my then husband relocated. And um, while I was looking for a job in academia, what to do next, I actually opened a vegan restaurant. And that's sort of where um, I met someone that, that sparked the kind of anarchist ideas. And I guess I had, you know, I had some introduction to it already. Um, I'd read bits and pieces here and there. But like many people, I was very skeptical. Um, so I liked the ideals a lot, but um, I just didn't think that it was practical. <laughs> and so, um, a very typical, a very typical, response. very typical reaction. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was also typical. <laughs> so um, then, at that time, um, I also started reading Deleuze and Guattari. I picked up um, a thousand plateaus. And by that time, I had actually um, gone from analytic to to more continental philosophy, um, you know, via Derrida and Foucault. Derrida was very big in South Africa, so you sort of couldn't miss it in the sort of 90s. So, uh, and so I really got interested in that. And, you know, as I got interested in Foucault, I started reading more French philosophy, uh, Christopher, you know, um, Irigere and so on. And then I found Deleuze and Guattari. And of course, when I read A Thousand Plateaus, which was the first book I read, my mind exploded. <laughs> and um, and immediately I started seeing these affinities between anarchism and Deleuze and Guattari. But I hadn't yet, um, I wouldn't say that I'd quite figured out anarchism for myself. And so at that time I started reading a lot I started meeting more anarchists. Um, I started seeing what people do these days, you know, um, how they practice anarchy in society today. And that started changing my mind about um, what really is possible. And I also sort of started realizing, you know, how I had limited my own thinking around what is possible politically in society. And so that's, that's sort of the where it started, you know, that was the beginning mm. of it. And that was quite a long time ago. Um, I would say that was about 10 or 11 years ago now, mm-hmm. um, maybe more. So it's it's been something that's been sort of in my mind, something that I've, these these disparate kind of um, fields of study that I've, I've read a lot about. And, um, and, I, and I guess slowly but surely, 
this idea for the book started fermenting um, in my mind. And well, this was the culmination. All right, so the the first ideas you had of the book have been in the back of your mind for for quite a long time. It sounds like they've they've sort of been there, and I guess you know, um, I first did an edited volume, which I edited with Aragon Iloth, and uh, so that was the first project we did. And um, a lot of people wrote, you know, well known people like Thomas Nail, um, Nathan Jun. Um, yeah, you know, uh, big names in anarchism, but then also less known people. We wanted it to be a kind of, um, you know, a melting pot, people from everywhere, people who are well-known, people who are not well-known, people from the global south, people from the global north. Um, and, and so we got a lot of different people talking about it. And I guess the thing that I started thinking about is that there are actually quite a lot of books on Deleuze and Guattari and anarchism. But they focus on, they have specific angles. So, um, you know, if you look at uh, Thomas Nail's book, he looks at revolution, talks specifically about the Zapatistas. Um, um, Duane Rosselli, again, has a kind of oh, a more psychoanalytic lens. But mm. so there are these, like, um, there are these books, there are quite a lot of books, actually. But I didn't feel that there was a book that sort of tried to cover, and, and this is maybe a bit too ambitious, <laughs> but sort of tried to cover what anarchism is, what it tries to do and accomplish, and how Deleuze and Guattari kind of resonate these ideas in their own book. Yes, yeah, so my next question, and getting more directly to the contents of the book, and tying it up with what you said, your kind of first knee-jerk reactions to anarchism was, is this, what you call in the book, you call uh, state realism or statist realism. Do you mind explaining? I, because I think this is basically, in a, in a certain sense, this is basically the problem statement of, of your work and perhaps one of the problem statements of anarchism as a complete political project even. Do you mind explaining what you mean by this term statist realism? Uh, no, not at all. And um, Well, I'd be in trouble if you said you don't want to explain <laughs> it. Yes. <laughs> but I think, you know, as you say statist realism, I think a lot of a lot of listeners are immediately going to think about Mark Fisher and his idea of capitalist realism. And you know, I, I want to give him credit because that is where my idea came from. And, um, you know, when he talks about capitalist realism, you know, he sort of riffs on that saying that is is attributed to, um, I think, to Zizek, but also to somebody else. And I can't quite remember who now. Um, Frederick Jameson, that's who. Mm. And so... Um, it's unclear who came up with it first, but it's attributed to both of them. And basically they say, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. So, well, a lot of people have critiqued this idea, but I think that there's something to it because, you know, if you think about it, it's true. Like if you, if you ask people, you know, what other system can we use? You know, they'll say something like, um, you know, barter uh, or, you know, maybe we can take away money or, but it's it's not clear what could replace this idea of capitalism because it's so deeply ingrained. Um, it has structured our lives, um, you know, in such concrete ways that it, it really is very difficult to imagine, except if you think, okay, you know, maybe some rich people can can buy some land somewhere and they, you know, can grow some food and they can be off the grid and get solar energy and, mm. you know, but all of that actually costs quite a lot of money to begin with. Mm. So there's that kind of conundrum, um, you know, that it's actually rich people who can break away from the system. And, and so I guess that's where it's, that's the kind of tricky thing is to think, okay, how do we actually get outside of this? 
And and of course, you get the same with thinking about the state. You know, as soon as you start talking about anarchism to people, and you know, as you say, that was my reaction too. You know, the question is like, okay, but what if societies become big? You know, how are we going to deal with waste management? Um, mm. You know, all these things. You know, how what are we going to do about healthcare, for example? All these things that the state supposedly. Uh, do for us, and in some cases, do actually do for us, depending on on where you live in the world. You know, they are different. It's 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 um yeah, it's better in some places and worse in others, right? For various reasons. <laughs> um, but I think you know that. So that's a good question, and so this started me on a kind of like um, sort of a roller coaster, really, about thinking about what it means and why it is really. Why can't we think beyond the state? Why is it so difficult to imagine a world outside of the state? And Mm. um, this is where I came up with the idea of statist realism, which really what it means is that in our minds, the state or status societies is, is the kind of horizon of human possibility. And that's quite strange because if that's the horizon of human possibility, it means we think it's the greatest achievement, right? And mm. so we often, this is often reflected in how we speak about, um, about sort of non-status societies. We talk about them as early civilizations or mm. primitive people, right? Mm. So it's already ref- that kind of bias is already reflected in our language. And and so this is something that was really interesting to me. And, and as you know, I start the book with um kind of with that 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 meme of uh, Bernie Sanders that went viral and mm. it was uh you know, it was actually Biden's inaugural, but mm. this meme stole the moment. And it was so interesting to me because... Sorry, this is the meme where he was sitting in the cold, hunched in a chair, looking very grumpy and miserable in this ostensibly celebratory occasion. That's exactly the meme. And, you know, he also has the mask on because it's still COVID, Um, you know, and he's sitting with his mittens. So in a way, it also looks... There's something um, quite cute about it, right? Mm. (laughs) But I think the thing is that, you know, Bernie Sanders also represents um, something of liberal democracy for us, right? Certainly a much nicer person than than Trump. Mm. <laughs> and so, but he's also not so radical. If you look at his policies, it's not really radical. So why is it that that is what we think should replace Biden, you know? Mm. And so... It's this problem of form and content, you know. It's like, oh, if there's just the next president, if we can just change the content, um, you know, if it can be Democrats instead of Republicans, or if it can be Republicans instead of Democrats, um, you know, or liberals instead of fascists. But that's just content. The form, the statist form, remains Mm. in place. And, And so... That's the greatest challenge, is how do we start thinking? How do we start dismantling the statist form in our own minds? Um, Because the state apparatus doesn't only, um, you know, it doesn't only appropriate land and, uh, you know, kind of start imposing tax and regulate people. It also actually captures our minds. And so that's mm. the idea. That's what statist realism is. It's this idea that the state form has is not only something that we see in the world, but is something that actually occupies our minds and has become a form of thought. Um, and and of course, I relate that to Deleuze's um, dogmatic image of thought, which is literally what he says in Difference and Rep- Repetition, is that, you know, often when we think we're having new thoughts, we're just changing the content, but the form Mm. of our thoughts are remaining exactly the same. So you almost have to get outside of your thought. And this is the challenge, right? Is how do you get Mm. outside? It's very difficult to get outside of your own framework. 
Yeah, and it's also there's something that echoes the kind of classical question or debate around technology of if if do we think that the state is just a kind of a neutral form and it all depends on who's wielding it, who's using it in what way, or is there something about the technology or the form of the state itself that structures the the kind of results or outcomes of employing that form? You know, the pharmacological side of, of the state. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So you then go on to describe and you just spoke about Deleuze and difference and repetition but in the work you then go on to give a very nice kind of overview of Deleuze and Guattari's conceptions of the state so what can we learn from from the two of them about the state that we have now so I guess the thing that is interesting for Deleuze and Guattari is that they really and really grapple with socio-political organization. They really want to understand not only how societies are organized, but, you know, why they are organized in the way that they are and why we understand, like, human freedoms in the way that we do. And so, you know, in Anti-Oedipus, that's the first place where they really work together in, in, in the book, um, they basically sort of critique Marx and psychoanalysis. And of course, you will know that Guattari was a psychoanalyst. So mm. it's something that he's very familiar with. And as you know, the thing that really interests me about that book is that they don't just critique these people. Their critique is in some way a, a form of praise because they show how mm. far Marxism came and how far Freud came. Um, in, in discovering certain things about the world. But, you know, then they kind of fall back on a certain framework. And so when Deleuze mm. and Guattari critique them, it's, it's actually, you know, I think they do it in a very genuine way where they've grappled with these concepts. And so what they, they say is, okay, well, the thing about society, and specifically status societies and capitalist societies, is that it, you know, it, it's got a very sort of um, dense consistency. And because it's got this dense consistency, we think it's just inevitable. We think that it always had to be this way. And so one of the things they can come up with is this idea of the Urstadt. And what is the Urstadt? It's this latent possibility of the state um, at the limit of non-statism. And so they say, well, no, it's a contingent history. This is the thing that we have to remember, even though it looks l like it's linear, like we went from, you know, from non-status societies to more organized sedentary societies to status societies as we know it now. And it seems like it was always inevitable. It really wasn't. And it changed mm. form all the time. And so I, I guess that's maybe one of the biggest things that they want to drive home is that the history of the world, the history of capitalism, and the history of statism is a contingent history. That's, mm. I would say, one of the main um, kind of themes that we see not only in Anti-Oedipus, but also in A Thousand Plateaus. Um, and so they, they kind of almost, as they talk about history, they also kind of undo history um, in a way, you know. And so the other thing they, they really talk about, and this is very interesting. So, so as we know, desire was something that was really interesting for Freud. He was really interested in, in desire and how it drives us, um, how it shapes what we do in the world mm. and how it shapes our psyches, really. Uh, but what he did is he reduced what Deleuze and Guattari think of as a whole libidinal economy to the eatable form. What they say is, no, he, he discovered desire. He discovered this like libidinal impulse. That's what he did mm. well. Where he went wrong is to reduce it to the eatable form. But in fact, mm. it can take many forms. You know, desire is machined, as they would say, in many different ways. It can be um, when you're in love with someone, it's machined in a kind of relational way. 
Uh, it's also machined by the family, by our work relations, by the way we relate to the environment. So it's really more like um, a free-flowing force. That's how we should rather think about it, as something that is more malleable than what the eatable um, kind of form would would make us think. But they really want to think about how we can free our desire from sort of capitalism and and statist ideas. Talking about this kind of machine desire and also, you know, I happen to mention or draw the parallel between the state form and technology. You also discuss quite in depth the role that technology does play in the state, in capitalism, and especially through the more specific lens of algorithms. Do you mind elaborating a little bit on what is the role that this kind of machinic or algorithmic or technological logic plays in this contingent state form that we are finding ourselves in? Yes, that's um, that's a really good question, and it's a really difficult question. <laughs> and it um, may be a very broad question, unfortunately. It's a broad question. But, but as you say, I actually think this is this is quite pivotal to my book because the thing is, you know, both anarchist analyses, Andalus and Guattarian analyses focus on the state and on capital because there's such large ideas um, and, and kind of materialities that shape our lives. But as we know, in sort of the last 10 to 15 years, roughly, um, technology has undergone a very big digital shift. And that shift, I would say, is as big as what capitalism did or what statism did. Um, it's, it's a new kind of, um, it's a new overarching logic that is shaping everything we do and how we think. And so, um, and, and you know, the thing about these new technologies is that they're on us all the time, but they've also become invisible because they're so ubiquitous. So, you know, if you think about, um, think about how strange it feels when you leave the house and you're somewhere and you realize you've left your phone at home. You sort of feel... You, you almost feel like you're missing a limb, you know, mm, and right. and I think that's that's interesting, right? I think and I think at some point we we have made this distinct this distinction between very online people and not very online people, but I think really we're all very online people now, and so so technology is part of us. It's it's. You know, it shapes how we think, it shapes how we do things in the world, it shapes capitalism, it shapes government. Um, you know, there is something what, that they call, um, and it's actually Antoinette Rouvroy, uh, she's a legal theorist, and she came up with this kind of phrase, which is um, algorithmic governmentality. And she's drawing, of course, on Foucault there and his idea of governmentality or the conduct of conduct. Um, and what is very interesting about it is that instead of seeing society as this kind of heterogeneous um, collection or um, of, of people, of problems, of um, you know assemblages, of the environment, people, uh, objects, and, and so on and so on, it actually um, it just views people as as kind of data set. And so it deals with, with society as a kind of data set. So the same way that algorithms would sift through data and kind of um, see patterns, you know, that is what governmentality is becoming more and more. And so there's something, there's something quite scary about that, right? Um, you know, and the thing is, I don't want to be all doom and gloom about technology. I think it's also changed our lives in amazing ways. Um, you know, and so even though I take quite a critical stance to it, because I think it's necessary, 
it's necessary not for us to only be like, oh, yay, technology is so great. Mm. Uh, you know, I can have this, I can have an iPad, I can do this with that technology. And, you know, and that can obscure actually so, sort of the other things that it's doing, like, like how it's changing our relationships to each other. You know, I see this often in my classes. My students will sit next to each other, not speaking to each other, but messaging each other. And really, really, <laughs> and I find that so. I find that like, you know, I've even asked them, "What are they doing?" And they're like, "We're chatting." And then, you know, for them, it's so normal. They're just chatting. Mm. And then I'm like, "But why aren't you having a conversation?" <laughs> um, and I think it's change. It's changing. Definitely changing how we relate to each other in the world. It's changing how we relate to ourselves in the world. And um, and I think that that's something that we really have to think about, you know, because there's a lot of work being done on like um, having better policies around uh, opacity and and so on, you know. But I think I think those are the wrong questions. Not that I think that we don't need those legal reforms. I think we do. But I think we have to ask other questions like, what kind of society is it that we want to live in? If, if we know what the society is that we, want, that we want and how we want it to function, then we can start thinking about the role of technology in there. And that changes the relationship. It changes the question and it changes the relationship. Um, yeah, and I and I think you know a lot of new work is coming out on this. Um, and as you know, I draw a lot of on Stiegler because I think, um, yeah, I really love his work, and I think he's done an amazing job of really thinking about how technology is changing our world. And and I guess the big thing is, you know, as he calls it, he says it's a pharmacon. It's both a poison and a cure at the same time. Those are imminent conditions to a pharmacon. Which one of those gets amplified depends on how we take care of the pharmacological situation. So right. if we take care of it, well, then there's scope for, for kind of more, for healthier relationships, right? If we don't take mm. care of it, um, technology starts running us. Yeah, and I really like what you're saying about asking what what is the type of future that we want because, and this ties in nicely with a, a quote that I really like from Norbert Wiener, you know, one of the fathers of cybernetics that yep. leads us to, to what we're talking about now. But he has this one really nice line that, that I always like, namely, he says, we always get the questions, no, we always get the answers that our questions deserve. You know, and that's that's really nice. So the point is, is in getting the right, getting the question right in the beginning, and exactly. I think that's mm. you know. And Deleuze also says a similar thing. He says we have to pose questions at the level of practice, and and I think that that's such an important aspect, you know. And um, yeah, it's interesting that you're talking about cybernetics because I think you you might have noticed that I take a more more negative approach to cybernetics mm. in in the book and and funny enough i've now done a lot of work on cybernetics and so my own thoughts have changed around that and there's actually a new book called anarchist cybernetics by thomas mm. swan and he kind of looks at um cyberneticians and and um you know their idea of control and communication and how that can be used to think about anarchist organization and strategy. And so it's really interesting. I, um, yeah, I highly recommend it. Thank you. I, f for me personally, I've always thought of cybernetics as kind of, for me, the ultimate pharmacon. It's, it's yeah. something that can, that, that, that can really go extremely one way or the, the other. Hence, I have a kind of a complicated personal relationship with cybernetics. But yeah, and I think also what's interesting about this, and you spoke a bit earlier about governmentality, is uh, where I think Deleuze deserves a lot of credit is that 
although he was the end of his life or or so was kind of on this transition period between let's say the analog and the digital but i think you know his by now extremely famous essay on societies of control he foresaw i think a lot of the consequences of cybernetic or digital technology that we really have to grapple with now right yeah and you know one of the interesting things about you know control of course control means something very specific for Deleuze it doesn't mean control in in the kind of layperson's um, terminology you know what it means really is modulation that's mm. what it means technically and that is something really that that fascinates me because he pinpointed the, the trouble <laughs> with digital technology is that it modulates our behavior all the time. So if you think about, you know, disciplinary societies, which uh, Foucault described, you know, it kind of, there's always this idea of, you know, you go from the school to the military, to the university, to work, um, and there are these enclosed spaces, and you're always kind of progressing. There's this idea of progression. What we have now is nothing like that. You know, there's no, like, like, think about what has happened to specialization. You have to be sort of a specialist of everything these days, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and that's really what he's talking about. He's talking about like, okay, this is the difficulty because you can't just say, okay, let's look at technology and what it's doing. Okay, it's doing A, B, C, and D. Now, we know some things that it's doing. For example, we know that it's hijacking our um, uh, dopamine pathways, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's designed to do that. And, and so we know that it's, it's making us addicted. So we understand that there's an addictive um, element to things like social media. Mm. So we can describe that part. But what we, what's harder to describe is actually how that kind of addiction is modulating our behavior all the time. So it's not just that it's modulating it in one specific way and then that's the way it is. No, it continues to be modulated. You know, I think that's actually what makes it so difficult to, to really take care of our pharmacological situation. And I think that, you know, that idea of care is something that I talk about a lot in my book because I feel like we need new philosophies of care. We need to, to make care a real philosophical concept again, um, mm. because, because that's the kind of, that's part of the kind of symptomatology, right? That's the kind of therapeutic part. Um, and, and what a symptomatology was for Deleuze and Guattari is, you know, they said we have to diagnose the problems. They get that from Nietzsche, of course, you know, we have to diagnose the problems in society, they see um, us like philosophers and writers, artists as clinicians of culture. And mm. so they say, okay, so one part of symptomatology is diagnosing the problems in society. But that's only one part. Once we've diagnosed the problems, we have to come up with more therapeutic ways of living. So in a way, um, health and unhealth health and disease is not something that is like in in opposition to each other they see it almost as like imminent to each other you know so mm. health is just at the one part of the con continuum and and disease at the other part and you know in our societies we all we're living with so many kinds of um diseases if you think about it you know ranging from mm. mental health issues to the way that our bodies are affected by pollution um, and all of these different kinds of things. And so really the question they're asking is, how can we live healthier lives, whether it's in terms of the environment, in terms of technology, in terms of our relationship to capitalism and so on? Yeah, I'm just thinking like you're talking about individual health, but also in the sense that that's already a cybernetic system and you're talking about what is our environment, this digital technological environment that we have? What kind of information is that putting in and changing our 
psychological system and mass-produced food that we're eating and what that is doing to our digestive systems, our psychological systems, and how that feeds back into society again. Yeah, sorry, this is not really a question, just... <laughs> Amusing. But the thing is, you know, you're, you're actually, like, if you think about this, think about how people also work these days. You sit in front of your computer. You don't take lunch. You sit and eat in front of your computer. What are you eating? Something that's easy to eat. You're not taking time to prepare food anymore, um, to sit with your family. And, of course, I'm making, like, a gross generalization here. I know some people really do take time. I, I think it's a fair generalization, yeah. Yeah, I think such so, an informed <laughs> generalization. But, um, yeah, that's something that really is interesting to me because those things all feed back on each other. So the faster technology becomes and wants us to become, you know, the less we take care of how we do everything else in the world. So it has that knock-on effect, you know, that thing that you've just described is this kind of knock-on effect um, mm. that all of these aspects have on each other. Sorry, I keep asking very broad questions, but so this this idea of care, I, I quite like that. Would I be right or wrong to make a Heideggerian connection to that, to Zorga, or, or is that something you'd rather not want? <laughs> Look, I'm, I mean... I understand Heidegger's project, but it has limitations for me. <laughs> <laughs> so now, I guess I would rather take care in a different way. So I think if we think about it in a sort of, in an anarchist way and in a mm. more Deleuze and Guattarian way, for me, it's something that brings, that helps us think about the future as much as about the present and and the past, you know, it's informed by the past. But I think one of the, the things about care for me is that one of the things that has happened with the externalization of memory. So if you think what I mean by that is the way that we dump our memory into computers and cell phones. So, you know, like you take photos and never look at it again. So that kind of externalized memory and, and also the way that our societies have changed means that the transfer of intergenerational and transgenerational memory is kind of disrupted. I don't think that many people in in very digitized, um, you know, maybe Western societies, what was called Western societies, of course, that's a kind of obsolete term because it's kind of infiltrated everywhere. But, you know, if you think about what that what that means. I don't think many people can tell you like, oh, my grandmother, you know, used to do this and this is how we mm. learned from that. And those sort of practical ways, those practical knowledges of how to take care of each other, our families, live in the world, they've kind of been eroded. And so what care for me would mean is really to come back, to think about how we want to live society to prefigure that in the here and now, the prefiguration for me would be a kind of practice of care. But also, and I think this is really important in terms of radical politics, setting up our communities, setting up radical communities in such a way that we transfer memory, you know, whether it's via zines or practices that we do that get transferred so that we build this intergenerational memory. Because that long memory, you know, that's why the state has such dense viscosity. It's not mm. because it's been there forever. It's because it's really like it's infiltrated everything from the church to the family. So it's made itself felt everywhere. And if we want our radical politics to infiltrate the world, we have to kind of find the same way to build this kind of dense viscosity. And that cannot be done in one generation. We need generations of this because that's how it spreads. That's how it spreads and, and becomes sort of more commonplace. How do we protect that against 
both capitalism and the state's tendency and, and, and quite skillful ability to kind of erase these memories, erase, to water down this viscosity, to use your word. Um, I mean, we've seen how, you know, with the rise of the state and, and nationalism, for example, the immense amount of work that had to go into watering down local particularity and individuality in order to make these kind of thick, uniform, monochrome blocks of identities. Um, and capitalism kind of maybe maybe achieves its results in a bit of an opposite way of, of, of constantly changing identity, yeah. on the other hand. Maybe that's a bit more, uh, you know, because just because capitalism is maybe a bit temporally... It's sort of together. Yeah, they sort of were together um, in a way. But, but you know, you're pointing something out. The, the state is territorializing, right? Yes. Mm. So it takes existing codes, it overcodes it. That's the best way of mm. describing it. It overcodes all the codes in a territory. And so everything starts conforming to the state. Capitalism, as you say, works differently because it deterritorializes. It deterritorializes desire. Anything goes. It doesn't matter because it doesn't matter what religion you are, doesn't matter what nationality you are. All that matters is that you can have something and make it equivalent to a sum of money. That's all. And you can do that with anything. You can even do that with a person. You can say that mm. person is worth so much money per year for their work. And so it's just this, it just becomes this kind of equivalence, right? A value equivalence. Yeah, and the, but these are very difficult, you know. The thing, mm. I guess, the thing that we have to, have to maybe admit to ourselves is that there's a lot about capitalist societies that we like. Mm. You know, if you want to undo <laughs> what you see as um, something that represses you, you first have to understand what you enjoy about it because otherwise you won't be able to change it because you have to replace you have to replace things in your own society and i guess that's the thing right is how do we ward off the state how do we ward off capitalism in our own societies i think you know one of the things that i think anarchists have really really emphasized is heterogeneity you know they don't they're very loath to give a blueprint of what the future should look like. Mm. They're like, you decide in your community, you know, as you go along, you decide. And I think, you know, that's such a, such a difficult thing to internalize when you've always been told what to do. And so here, I think the Zapatistas give us a very good example because there are a lot of people working out how to live without the state. Mm. <laughs> and so I think that's why many anarchists often talk about them. You know, they, they're not anarchists themselves, although we, we can say that they're anarchistic in many of their practices. Mm. And one of the practices they have is, is asking we walk. That's how it would translate from the Spanish. Mm. And what that means is, well, we don't have this kind of transcendent framework that tells us how to live. As new problems arise, we deal with it. Mm. It's this ongoing kind of transformation, right? And so I think that's one of the things is we kind of have to become more comfortable with transition mm. and with taking um, responsibility for our agency. So I think there's something, you know, it's scary, but there's also something really exciting about that is like, okay, I don't have to be told what to do in every situation of my life. I can participate here in meaningful ways. And I think, you know, we're not used to that in society. Mm. Just think of like, do you participate in your in your neighborhood or to what extent, you mm. know? And this is something that we can really learn is like, okay, hold on. How can I participate mm. meaningfully in the structures that structure my life? So if I want if I want the state, if I want to live in a non-state society, I have to start prefiguring that right now. So when somebody tells me what to do, even at work, maybe I can say, hold on, 
why do I have to do this? Can we have a discussion about this? Can it look this way? Can it look that? You know, like little things. Those are little mm -hmm. things. But but you start changing. You start changing your desire. You start changing the way you think. You start changing what you expect from life. And I think that's one of the ways. So again, you know, again, coming back to prefiguration. But I think it's so important because, you know, that's what Deleuze and Guattari would even say, is we have to change. The first change we have to make is right at the level of desire. And also related to that, what I always kind of use to console myself is that, you know, the, the state as we know it has, depending on how you look at it, either it's either centuries or millennia old, and it has had a lot of time and let's admit a lot of very smart, very talented people figuring it out and building it up. And a handful of people can't be expected to have a complete 100% alternative to the structure that took centuries to to figure itself out and that's still changing and figuring it its, itself out under changing conditions. So I think what I'm trying to say is that a bit of that hopeful modesty is what I hear in, in what you're saying, like having your eye on the future, hopefully, but being, you know, also setting achievable goals. I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yes, and, and so for me, it's really about practicing practicing anarchy all the time in your everyday life uh, with other anarchists, with other non-anarchists, you know. Um, I recently, there's a new film out. Uh, you know, it's got sort of Kropotkin in it. And, well, not Kropotkin, but the character of mm. Kropotkin. Um, it's called Unrest. But what struck me about the film, you know, I, I described it as um, sort of anarchist kitchen sink film. Mm. Um, you know, it's that. Oh, yeah, it's 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 got its own. It's strange because it's not about a particular person. You know, like it's, it doesn't have a like Kropotkin isn't the the main guy or anything mm. like that in the film. And I guess what struck me about it is how widespread. It, Anarchism was in the sort of um, late 19th, early 20th centuries. Mm. It was widespread. It was a common day thing, you know. And of course, a lot of work has been done to eradicate that from memory. And so it's like, I guess that was that's something that really struck me and that I think, you know, maybe that's what we need to get back to is just being anarchists all around you know, getting it to a point where it's sort of just common. It's right. just, you know, it doesn't, you're not like the weird anarchist in the room. There are lots of, you know, it needs to kind of reach a, that's, I guess that's part of the consistency, you know, mm. you know, as, as veganism has spread, you know, veganism is like, it's reached like kind of a peak in society. You can, you have options any, almost anywhere in the world. I almost think that we need that kind of thing with anarchism, you know, and I think that is something that anarchists think about a lot. They they think about that critical mass. It's not something that they don't think about. But I I think that there is a lot of um there is a lot of resistance to it. And there's a lot of resistance because <laughs> because the state has worked hard at creating this horrible image of like anarchists as bomb throwing people who mm. don't care about other people's lives you know it's this cut you know yeah it's just seen as this kind of rebellious teenage phase that you go through yeah and if it continues into adulthood it's really something you want to eradicate from your personality and and of course that's the opposite of what it really is you know anarchists want people to live in a society where they have as much freedom as possible without impinging on other people's freedom, where they work together to formulate the ways in which they want to live and how they want to express themselves. And so I think, yeah, I think that's that's the kind of task that lies ahead for us. You know, that's the kind of challenge is to once again gain critical mass. Mm. Well, I I think that's a very nice note to finish on. 
So Chantal, thank you very much for graciously giving your time. And is there any, I always feel like it's such a cruel question asking someone directly after a big project like a book, but what is, what is the next thing that we can look forward to from you? Nicole, just before I answer that, I just want to say thank you for inviting me um, and really for your thought-provoking questions. But um, yes, I do have projects <laughs> um, that I'm working on, uh, sort of two really um, book projects. The one is sort of going back to, you know, what has been called philosophies of the concept, thinking about Bachelor, Kangrelem, uh, Foucault, and so on. And um, my idea is sort of placing Deleuze and Guattari in this kind of lineage, but also show how they break from it. Mm. So that's the one project um, that I'm I'm kind of working on. The other one is, um, you know, is is actually is on cybernetics and. Deleuze and anarchism. <laughs> so, um, so thinking a little bit more about, yes, I, I guess, um, you know, my first introduction to, to cybernetics was through Tikkun. So I, mm. I had a very specific um, idea about it. And now I've gone sort of down the deep end and have been reading a lot. And like you, I, I think it's, uh, you know, the ultimate pharmacon. Mm. <laughs> um, and I think that they are really interesting things to tease out. Yeah, and so my uh, my interest there is actually also more in the kind of creative, the sort of bastard offspring, if I can say, <laughs> of cybernetics, which is the more um, creative projects that mm. came from it. That is what uh, kind of interests me. So, you know, th the idea of lines of flight um, and how we can sometimes you know, tra transform what is happening in society by sort of misreading things a little bit. Um, yeah, taking it in, in a different direction. Oh, I'm not saying this out of politeness. That sounds super fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to, to seeing that work when it's finished. Thank you. Yeah. So th thank you very much, Chantal. And please come on anytime you want. When those books are out, I hope you can come back. Absolutely. Thanks, Nico.